Section 6 of Selected Classics of Washington Irving by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Section 6 The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Part 2. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured to himself every roasting pig running about with a pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. The geese were swimming in their own gravy and the ducks pairing cosily in dishes like snug married couples with a decent competency of onion sauce in the porkers he saw carved out the future sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham not a turkey but he beheld daintily trussed up with its gizzard under its wing and peradventure a necklace of savory sausages an even bright chancellor himself lay sprawling on his back in a side dish with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living as the enraptured ichabod fancied all this and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadow lands the rich fields of wheat of rye of buckwheat and indian corn and the orchards burdened with ruddy fruit which surrounded the warm tenement of van tassel his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains and his imagination expanded with the idea how they might be readily turned into cash and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness nay his busy fancy already realized his hopes and presented to him the blooming katerina with a whole family of children mounted on the top of a wagon loaded with household trumpery with pots and kettles dangling beneath and he beheld himself bestriding a pacing mare with a colt at her heels setting out for kentucky tennessee or the lord knows where when he entered the house the conquest of his heart was complete it was one of those spacious farmhouses with high ridged but lowly sloping roofs built in the style handed down from the first dutch settlers the low projecting eaves forming a piazza along the front capable of being closed up in bad weather under this were hung flails harness various utensils of husbandry and nets for fishing in the neighboring river benches were built along the sides for summer use and a great spinning wheel at one end and a churn at the other showed the various uses to which this important porch might be devoted from this piazza the wandering ichabod entered the hall which formed the center of the mansion and the place of usual residence here rows of resplendent pewter ranged on a long dresser 
dazzled his eyes. In one corner stood a huge bag of wool ready to be spun. In another, a quantity of linsey woolsey just from the loom, ears of Indian corn and strings of dried apples and peaches hung in gay festoons along the walls, mingled with the gaud of red peppers, and a door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor, where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors and irons with their accompanying shovel and tongs glistened from their covert of asparagus tops mock oranges and conch shells decorated the mantelpiece strings of various colored birds eggs were suspended above it a great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room and a corner cupboard knowingly left open displayed immense treasures of old silver and well-mended china from the moment ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight the peace of his mind was at an end and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of van tassel in this enterprise however he had more real difficulties than generally fell to the lot of a knight-errant of yore who seldom had anything but giants enchanters fiery dragons and such like easily conquered adversaries to contend with and had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass and walls of adamant to the castle keep where the lady of his heart was confined all of which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the centre of a christmas pie and then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course ichabod on the contrary had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments and he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood the numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other but ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor among these the most formidable was a burly roaring roistering blade of the name of abraham or according to the dutch abbreviation brom van brunt the hero of the country round which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood he was broad-shouldered and double-jointed with short curly black hair and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance having a mingled air of fun and arrogance from his herculean frame and great powers of limb he had received the nickname of brom bones by which he was universally known he was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship being as dexterous on horseback as a tartar he was foremost at all races and cockfights and with the ascendancy which bodily strength acquires in rustic life was the umpire in all disputes setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone admitting of no gainsay or appeal he was always ready for either a fight or a frolic but had more mischief than ill-will in his composition and with all his overbearing roughness there was a strong dash of waggish good-humour at bottom he had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model 
and at the head of whom he scouted the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles around. In cold weather, he was distinguished by a fur cap surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail, and when the folks at a country gathering decried this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about among a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with a whoop and halloo, like a troop of Don Cossacks, and the old dames, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment till the hurry-scurry had clattered by, and then exclaim, Ah, there goes Brown Bones and his gang. The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill, and when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted Brown Bones was at the bottom of it. This rantipole hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries, and, though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is, his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a line in his amours, insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's paling on a Sunday night, a sure sign that his master was courting, or, as it is termed, sparking, within, all other suitors passed by in despair, and carried the war into other quarters. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend. And, considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supple jack, yielding, but although, though he bent, he never broke, and though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment it was away, jerk, he was as erect, and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not man to be thwarted in his amours, any more than that stormy lover, Achilles. Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under cover of his character of singing-master, he made frequent visits at the farmhouse. Not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling-block in the path of lovers. Balt von Tassel was an easy, indulgent soul. He loved his daughter better, even, than his pipe, and, like a reasonable man and an excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry for, as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things, and must be looked after but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house, replied her spinning wheel at one end of the piazza, honest Balt would sit smoking his evening pipe at the other, watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior, who, 
armed with a sword in each hand, was most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit with the daughter by the side of the spring, under the great elm, or sauntering along in the twilight, that hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won. To me, they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have but one vulnerable point, or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues, and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter, for the man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown, but he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is, this was not the case with the redoubtable brown bones. And from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied at the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brom, who had a degree of rough chivalry in his nature, would fain have carried matters to open warfare, and have settled their pretensions to the lady according to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners, the knights errant of yore, by single combat. But Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse, and he was too wary to give him an opportunity. There was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brom no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic waggery in his disposition and to play off boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night, in spite of its formidable fastenings of with and window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy, so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But, what was still more annoying, Brom took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress, and had a scoundrel dog, whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner, and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's, to instruct her in psalmody. In this way matters went on for some time, without producing any material effect on the relative situation of the contending powers. On a fine autumnal afternoon, Ichabod, in pensive mood, sat enthroned on the lofty stool whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand he swayed a furrel, that sceptre of despotic power, the birch of justice reposed on three nails behind the throne, a constant terror to evil-doers, while on the desk before him 
might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons detected upon the persons of idle urchins such as half-munched apples pop-guns whirligigs fly-cages and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks apparently there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom it was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a negro in toe-clothed jacket and trousers a round-crowned fragment of a hat like the cap of mercury and mounted on the back of a ragged wild half-broken colt which he managed with a rope by way of halter he came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to ichabod to attend a merry-making or quilting frolic to be held that evening at Menheer von Tassel's, and, having delivered his message with that air of importance and effort at fine language, which a negro was apt to display on petty embassies of the kind, he dashed over the brook, and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of his mission. All was now bustle and hubbub in the late, quiet schoolroom the scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity and those who were tardy had a smart application now and then in the rear to quicken their speed or help them over a tall word books were flung aside without being put away on the shelves inkstands were overturned benches thrown down and the whole school was turned loose an hour before the usual time bursting forth like a legion of young imps yelping and racketing about the green in joy at their early emancipation the gallant ichabod now spent at least an extra half hour at his toilet brushing and furbishing up his best and indeed only suit of rusty black and arranging his locks by a bit of broken looking glass that hung up in the schoolhouse that he might make his appearance before his mistress in the true style of a cavalier he borrowed a horse from the farmer with whom he was domiciliated a choleric old dutchman of the name of hans von ripper and thus gallantly mounted issued forth like a knight-errant in quest of adventures but it is meet i should in the true spirit of romantic story give some account of the looks and equipments of my hero and his steed the animal he bestrode was a broken-down plough-horse that had outlived almost everything but his viciousness he was gaunt and shagged with a ewe-neck and a head like a hammer his rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs one eye had lost its pupil and was glaring and spectral but the other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it still he must have had fire and metal in his day if we may judge from the name he bore of gunpowder he had in fact been a favorite steed of his master's the choleric van ripper who was a furious rider and had infused very probably some of his own spirit into the animal for old and broken down as he looked there was more of the lurking devil in him than in any young filly in the country ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed 
he rode with short stirrups, which brought his knees nearly up to the pommel of the saddle. His sharp elbows stuck out like grasshoppers. He carried his whip particularly in his hand like a scepter. And as his horse jogged on, the motion of his arms was not unlike the flapping of a pair of wings. A small wool hat rested on the top of his nose, for so his scanty strip of forehead might be called, and the skirts of his black coat fluttered out almost to his horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod, and his steed as they shambled out of the gate of Hans von Ripper, and it was altogether such an apparition as is seldom to be met with in broad daylight. It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery which we always associate with the idea of abundance. The forests had put on their sober brown and yellow, while some trees of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frosts into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming files of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. The bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts, and the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble field. The small birds were taking their farewell banquets. In the fullness of their revelry, they fluttered, chirping and frolicking, from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen, with its loud querulous note, and the twittering blackbirds, flying in sable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker, with his crimson crest, his broad black gorget, and splendid plumage, and the cedar-bird, with its red-tipped wings, and yellow-tipped tail, as little Montero cap of feathers, in the blue jay, that noisy coxcomb, in his gay light blue coat and white underclothes, screaming and chattering, bobbing and nodding and bowing, and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove. As Ichabod jogged slowly on his way, his eye, ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance, ranged with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. On all sides he beheld vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider-press. Farther on he beheld great fields of Indian corn, with its golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts and holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding and the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them, turning up their fair round bellies to the sun, and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies. And anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, breathing the odor of the beehive, and as he beheld them, soft anticipations stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well buttered and garnished with honey or treacle by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina van Tossel. Thus feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts, and sugared suppositions, he journeyed along the sides of a range of hills, which look out upon some of the goodliest scenes of the mighty Hudson. The sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down into the west, 
the wide bosom of the Tappan Zee lay motionless and glassy, excepting that here and there a gentle undulation waved and prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountain. A few amber clouds floated in the sky, without a breath of air to move them. The horizon was of a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green, and from that into the deep blue of the mid-heaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woody crests of the precipices that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark gray and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly down with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast, and as the reflection of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in the air. End of Section 6 The Legend of Sleepy Hollow Part 2 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida